0: So this is our Simon Don reading group. We are picking up from page 156 of Imagination and Invention. That's 156 in the translation. So we are in the fourth part on invention. We've looked at, uh, in this part, we've looked at um, a few different types of invention or or sort of stages of invention. Um, So we looked at detour behavior in animals, um, the, the capacity of an animal to, you know, when it's trying to reach a goal to, um, sort of provisionally move away from the goal in order to reach that goal through through this detour. And and then we looked at um, tool use in animals. And of course, there's this sort of tradition um, that goes back to um, probably the Stoics of taking tool use as a sort of characteristic of the human being, this homo faber tradition. Uh, but this, of course, turns out to be false. There are many animals that use tools in, in different ways. And then and so, of course, a tool using a tool or especially creating a tool uh, requires again a sort of detour—not um, not a detour necessarily in physical space, but a, a detour in sort of conceptual space. So instead of if, if you have some sort of problem or some sort of goal you're trying to reach, instead of sort of directly going to try to um, approach that goal, you instead take this detour of building a tool or um, um, you know selecting a tool out of the environment, um, you know preparing it in some way. Uh, and, and then after you've prepared the tool, then you sort of use it to reach the goal. Um, so it, again, it requires uh, a certain amount of, um, understanding of the situation of, um, you have to understand what are the properties of the objects in your environment and how you could modify those properties to, um, make one piece of the environment into something, into a tool that, um, would be useful, uh, that would help you achieve your goal, um, so you have to have a pretty sophisticated understanding of the different um, uh, properties of your environment and how you can modify those properties. And then what the future state would be um, um, if you were to modify those uh, those objects in that way. Um, and then we looked at um, this bit, um, invention concerning signs and symbols. So the second, I mean, this is where we still are, the second section of uh, of this part. Um, and so here, Simondon is talking about the relationship between technical invention and science. And um, so one of the uh, key ideas here is the idea of abstraction. So um, uh, when you build a tool, you're sort of um, or, or a machine or whatever it is, you're, you're sort of operating on a concrete object. You're taking some sort of object and um, modifying its properties in some way. Um, but then, if you want to, for example, explain to someone else or teach someone else how to how to make that tool, you have to abstract from the concrete specifics of this particular tool. You have to um, explain, like, what uh, what the technique is or what the um, uh, operations are that you have to perform on any object of this kind to produce the, a tool of this kind. And and so, this um, need for communicability is. Is part of what um, um, is is part of the sort of prerequisites for uh, abstract conceptual knowledge of a situation. So um, there are you know many animals that are capable of um, you know selecting a, a stick or a, a stone or whatever that has the right properties to perform a certain action. But um, there's I don't, I don't think there's any evidence that um, any other animals besides humans uh, communicate. Um, the properties of objects and how to manipulate them. Um, like, There's definitely social learning in other animals, but it, it's mostly through imitation uh, is what it looks like. Um, so you like, um, one monkey will observe another monkey um, manipulating a, a rock in a certain way to, to break a nut, for example, and then we'll try to imitate it and eventually we'll learn how to um, perform that action in a, a sort of efficient and reliable manner. Um, but there's no, like the monkey doesn't sort of, um, explain to the other monkey. This is how you break open a nut. Um, whereas with humans, uh, of course we have, um, sort of, uh, you know, craft knowledge that you learn as an apprentice. You, you sort of, uh, you're, you work at the blacksmith or whatever, uh, or a, a carpenter. You just sort of watch the master. Um, you sort of try to imitate it. And so this is a similar type of learning as, um in the case of the monkey or a bird or whatever. Um, uh, and then, and this knowledge, you might not be able to communicate. You ha- you just have a sort of feel for like, you know, when the metal is too hot or when the wood is, um, you know, being sawed in the right manner or whatever. Um, but then uh, there's also learning that is more sort of formal in the sense that you uh, can write it down in a book. You can have like an encyclopedia that explains like, how to build a certain machine or how to um, design, how to, uh, like, what, what properties uh, a tool has to have to be um, useful in, in this respect. Um, so you can write it down, you can teach it in a classroom, you can explain it verbally. Um, uh, so this is a, a sort of conceptual knowledge that is uh, transmissible in a way that the craft knowledge is not. Um, and this is sort of like the, the first step towards something like a science. Um, because uh, science, of course, is, some, is a kind of knowledge that has to be um, communicable. Um, it has, like this is sort of the, one of the key principles or, of the opposition between science and um, craft knowledge is is this communicability. Um, uh, and so this formalization or abstraction from uh, the concrete circumstances is like a, a prerequisite for something like a science to develop. Uh, and so Simon Don talks about um, this idea of uh, an encyclopedic thought, uh, and this is something that we've seen in other texts from him. Uh, uh, and so this is uh, a sort of ideal of um, uh, fully explicit knowledge or or making human knowledge fully explicit. So taking everything that is in the realm of craft knowledge and sort of implicit feel of like how to do things uh, and turning it into an explicit knowledge of uh, that can be communicated uh, and ideally, you know, written down in a book. Um, and, uh, yeah, so this um, this sort of ideal, this sort of movement um, also leads to things like um, the systematization of weights and measures. Uh, so we talked about this last time in the sort of French Revolutionary context, um, how uh, all these sort of um, local weights and measures were replaced by uh, a uniform national system of weights and measures, um, and and some of the goals for this uh, replacement are um, to make commerce more effective or, or more efficient. Um, so instead of having to sort of um, look at the price of wheat in like, you know, one bushel in this town might be slightly more than uh, one bushel in the next town. Uh, and so comparing the price of a bushel of wheat is like you have to convert the, the bushels and the price. Uh, so it just makes it more complicated. Um, and uh, and then facilitating um, eventually uh, things like standardized parts, um, and this this is something that um, often was was um, imposed by military contracts. Um, so if you're if you're um, if you're an army, for example, and you order um, a thousand muskets from you know some workshop, um, you have to ensure that all these muskets meet certain uh, uh, standards of you know. The, the barrel is so long and, and you know has this width and, and whatever. Um, uh, and so there's like the measurements have to be standardized so that the the actual uh, product can be standardized. Uh, and so this, again, so is meant to facilitate um, the development of, of technical objects in the sense that you now have these standardized parts that you can use and um, you can sort of assemble these parts into new technical objects. Um, so again, there's uh, this encyclopedic thought, and this standardization of weights and measures um, are are sort of means to allow for um, invention to occur in in the recombination of those parts. Um, and and you have these sort of preset schemas that you can apply. You have an understanding of what a spring does, what a um, a lever and a pulley, et cetera, uh, all these simple machines. You you know what they do, and then you can sort of put them together to produce a desired effect. Uh, So all of these uh, elements all go towards um, um, making invention uh, more likely to happen or or make it easier to um, perform. Uh, So yeah, I think that's about what we saw last time or up to last time. So I'll ask someone to read from uh, subsection two subjective formalizations.
1: I can read. Uh, Subsection two, subjective formalizations, normative and artistic. But another mode of formalization is possible, separated from the first through a dichotomy that is necessary to preserve the homogeneity of operative modes. Everything that is not operative, that is everything in the relation with the world that is affective, emotional, may also be formalized and expressed according to subjective categories that authorize participation in action through the communication of a feeling or an emotion, or a definite mode of resonance, uh, or of motivation. In this sense, action, individual as well as collective, is distinct from an operation. It too has its modes of compatibility, which are norms and ritualizations, but not processes. The arts and religious modalities of collective life correspond to the formalization of action, by opposition to operations, according to a dichotomy that is translated by the separation of leisure and work activity, even if celebrations punctuate the great phases in the patterns of work over the courses of the seasons. More specifically, it is artistic formalization that is apposite to the operative modes of work. The time of art is that of leisure. While religious formalization is the principle and guarantee of this dichotomy and of the alternating rhythm between leisure time and work time, highlighting the transitions, changes of regimen, ritualizing the key moments at the beginning and end of labor and leisure, propitiating the start of work through the offer of first fruits, thus facilitating the separation but also the compatibility of modes of work and leisure. The calendar is religious with the complex structures of good omen and bad omen, according to time and place, within an implicit logic of beginnings and endings, stoppages and resumptions. The religious modality of formalization in our societies corresponds to the rhythm of holidays and commemorations, inauguration ceremonies, graduations, and rites of initiation or exclusion. Everything that performs an action has an absolute origin or end of an existence everything that institutes, voids, or converts in an essential way. At all such occasions, invention provides modes of expression and communication that are necessary for collective participation, and it operates a discovery of compatibility within the whole set of ideals of the group. A declaration of war or a treaty signature are actions existing as formalized and communicable performances tending towards a universal expression revolutions to, as well as a large part of political theory, unfold by inventing at each new turn, at each turn, a new system of compatibility, creating norms and a new systematic framework for the relations among individuals and among groups. Law, together with the legal universe as a whole, is a development that is contemporary with the formalization of action. Each new extension of the domain of human action is marked by an invention authorizing a systematic framework of compatibility, embracing this domain, international law, then space law. In each era, normative inventions discover a compatibility for modes of existence. that had neither meaning nor points of insertion in previous normative structures. Such inventions provide a symbolism of action by producing an expressible universe of norms while responding to problems. Hence, Christianity offered norms for relationships between those who had rights and those who didn't in ancient city-states. It provided a city of norms, resolving the problem of compatibility between empires, nations, and individuals, and overcoming within the city the limits of religious prohibitions. The Sabbath is made made for men, not men for the Sabbath, and customary juridical obstacles. He who is not sinned, let him cast the first stone, or the norms of relations between rich and poor nationals and foreigners. Axiological formalizations concern the key points and key moments of action, principally in the form of a system of axioms for decision-making that lead to a universal representation of the world and humanity, and which are expressed in a symbolism of action that can be taught and propagated. This symbolism sets up a system for the conversion of actions into one another, enabling them to be compared and relate to each other even if they unfold in conditions that are heterogeneous and concretely dissimilar, according to place, time, and the empirical, uh, empirical surroundings of each subject. Invention in the normative domain also tends towards the universal. Yeah, so uh, I'm actually not totally sure what this distinction between the operative and everything that is not operative um, I guess what the boundary would be between operative and effective emotional but I think he wants to associate it with work and leisure with religion sort of marking the beginning or end of like work periods or leisure periods and I wish he had said a bit more about art um, I like this idea of religion as the formalization of absolute ending and beginning um, but I think I would need to hear more about how art is a formalization of leisure activity um, because it's it's an interesting suggestion, but he doesn't really say very much about it.
0: Yeah, this bit is uh, a little bit compressed. Um, I think this distinction between um, the operative on the one hand and the affective emotional on the other hand has to do with um, whether you're sort of directly transforming something uh, or... Uh, so in the case of operative activity you would be a sort of prototype of this would be like um, taking a piece of clay and imposing a form on it Um, so you're you're actually transforming something outside of yourself and you're producing a product which is uh, separate from yourself whereas um, affective emotional activity you're not producing something distinct from yourself you're transforming yourself or you're undergoing a transformation Um, and I think I think that's roughly what he's he's sort of distinguishing here. And so here we're talking about a formalization of affective emotional activity. Um and and so religious um sort of uh ceremonies would be uh sort of a, a key example of this uh in the sense that you have um like uh you have ceremonies like baptism, um uh, marriage, uh um you know uh funerals, uh, these are sort of uh common to many different religious traditions. Um, the, the sort of mark moments of transition or um transformation of some kind uh where you pass from uh, you know one state to another or you sort of move from uh existing in the world to not existing um um and and so yeah these these sort of formalizations like religious ceremonies or uh legal um you know obligations. so there's like uh the sort of ceremony of signing a contract um it's uh um you have to sort of um formalize the like the actual agreement is something that happens before the contract is is signed but then the the sort of ceremony of actually signing the contract is what makes it sort of uh um pass from like an agreement to a a legally binding contract um um and so you are um undergoing a transformation or bringing about a transformation in yourself by signing a contract. Uh, and so these are examples of this kind of formalization. Uh, and, and when he talks about religion here, we can also think like, of course, there's you know, religion in sort of the strict sense of the term you know, in a church or a temple or whatever. Um, but uh, in our society uh, or in Western societies where religion has a, a less or religion in the sort of strict sense has a, a less prominent role um, there are still things like holidays, um, where there are certain times of year um, where you um, um, you sort of separate or you, like these moments in the year are sort of set aside for uh, uh, you know marking a transition. Uh, you know whether it's like uh, a change of seasons or the new year that happens. Um, you have a, a celebration to mark a transition to uh, a new a start of a new year. Uh, and then we have, of course, ceremonies like um, graduation ceremonies um, um, where you you're passing from a student um, existence to a uh, you know a I don't know an post school existence, usually a, a workforce existence. Um, um, so yeah, any any type of like ceremonial marking of uh, a moment of transition or transformation, I think would count as religious. In, in this sense for Simondo, like a broader sense of religion, um, where like even a school graduation ceremony would be a, a kind of religious um, uh, action. So this is a, a sort of formalization of this um, affective emotional transition. Um, and and uh, it's important also that these formalizations are collective ones. Um, so like every person undergoing a transition from uh, a student state to, uh, uh, I don't know, a, an employee employment state will have, uh, a different set of emotions, a different sort of emotional response to this situation. Um, but this sort of shared, um, ritual or this shared ceremony, uh, allows you to sort of, um, um, put those emotional responses into, uh, a kind of framework, um, and, and make sense of them and, and sort of, um. Like not sort of go through it on your own, but instead you you go through it with a group of peers, and you have um I don't know parents and professors and whoever are are present at this ceremony, and and so you're sort of um, undergoing the transition in a, a sort of comprehensible way, as opposed to this very obscure individual um, transition. Uh, so it's it's a it's yeah it, this collective nature allows you to sort of make sense of these transitions in a way that would be much more difficult if you had to go through each transition um, individually. A little bit later, he talks about uh, uh, amplification and
1: uh, formalization, but reading back through this, um, it's helpful. I guess I see it as kind of a, another one of the like missing examples from um, Individuation Volume 1, where he just didn't, I didn't give very many examples in psychic and collective individuation, but um, the way that I'm reading this is that these formalizations uh, sort of like the more highly formalized, um, the more sort of structured the uh, something like the command becomes um, or the explanation. um, And so the more highly structured it is, the more, um, different domains it can amplify through and it's yeah the more um so it it like plays the role of the seed crystal um in structuring these different uh like even social and religious domains
0: yeah i think we can connect this with um his notion of this like intensity of information or attention of information that he wants to introduce in, uh, to sort of complement the notion of the, um, quantity of information transmitted in a message. Um, so, uh, um, a sort of a religious ceremony, for example, um, might not, uh, like the actual sort of information conveyed in the message is, is minimal in the sense that, um, everyone or most of the people attending this ceremony already knows what the uh, they already know what the the leader of the ceremony is going to say. like if you go to a you know a graduation ceremony the the speech um, that the the speaker gives it generally doesn't have a lot of surprises. it's it's sort of like standard you know inspiring messages that everyone's heard before um, um, but uh, uh, or again, like a, a religious ceremony in a, in a strict sense is even more formalized. You have like particular um, phrases or chants or whatever that you have to repeat, um, and and you know even like postures of um, the way you're supposed to hold your body can be you know explicitly set out uh, as like part of the ceremony. Um, uh, so there, there's not a lot of surprise or there's not a lot of like new information conveyed in the ceremony, uh, but at the same time there could be a very high tension of information in in Siamandona's sense of the word. So it, it can be this. Uh, religious ceremony or graduation ceremony or whatever it is can um, serve to structure a whole period of someone's life Um, if it is something like a a graduation or uh, a wedding or baptism or whatever these kind of ceremonies can sort of um, set the tone for you know years to come Um, uh, can you know your your life may be sort of um, transformed by um, or or uh this ceremony marks a, a sort of transformation of your whole life. Um, uh, and, and so this, uh, the ceremony can have a, a structuring power or a structuring influence over a whole period of your life. Um, so yeah, it, it, this sort of high tension of information, can, like this formalization, this very, um, uh, this sort of stock, uh, set of phrases and, and gestures and so on, um, can, can have, uh, a very, um, high tension of information, even if the quantity of information transmitted is very low. Okay, uh, I can read the next bit. As for artistic invention, to the extent that it performs a formalization of leisure, it also produces a complete and universalizable representation, participating in the specific logic of each genre and each form of art. Successive inventions of symbolic forms were proved by enlarging the effects and modes of appearances of reality, which initially were not recognized as citizens within the artistic domain. Formalization proceeds in the direction of extension and the discovery of compatibility among originally heterogeneous data. If we consider only the still recent instance of cinema, we can see that this art, initially considered as a formalization of the vision of motion, successively integrated sound, then color, by discovering the modes of compatibility of their simultaneous use. With every new incorporation, purists reacted on behalf of the homogeneity of each, of each art by proclaiming the destruction of true cinema. But this art has developed. It is currently discovering, lo- discovering the logic of its compatibility with a new world of broadcasting and production that is television, and with the techniques authorizing this narrow compatibility, the reporting of images on magnetic tape. The key to such successive extensions is the fact that a new element is not, subsequent to its incorporation, what it would have been in an isolated state, as a unique means of expression. Hence, sound was first speech in cinema, that is, the contribution of the actor's parts, and in this, of course, it doubled the image without mixing with it. A film became became a tribune for speeches, tirades, or argumentation. Then, with the broadening of the notion and techniques of the soundtrack, sound integrated noises, and speaking came to the level of noises and sounds, becoming at times non-comprehensible or insignificant. In this new form, speech became compatible with the entire sonic content and with the image, whether it was emphasized or accessory. Color too will be entirely compatible with the other compositional aspects when, within one work, and in alternation with these other aspects, it can be either conspicuous or barely perceptible rather than being merely the opportunity to pick colorful subject matters. What is truly the invention of an epoch in the domain of artistic symbolism is a mode of compatibility between previously isolated forms. In the 17th century, it was architecture that played this role of permanent and universal universal panegyric of the arts because it placed the integration of sculpture, painting, fine woodwork, and the art of gardening and fountain craft within organized synthetic holes such as palaces or mansions. Renaissance Italy had paved the way in this area, Prior to the Renaissance, religious architecture had constituted the milieu and universal symbolic system integrating sculpture, painting, music, and singing. At the end of the 18th century, and especially during the 19th century, it was literature that offered an open domain to particular modalities, attempting to make things visible and audible, absorbing within its specific means the plastic arts, painting, drawing, illustrations, and engraving, making the book into the milieu of the compatibility of the arts, thanks to the development of the printed text. Cinema and then television took up the baton from the book and the newspaper as vehicles of, as vehicle of the arts. It would be a mistake to treat them as separate arts comparable to music, sculpture, or theater. They form rather symbolic systems of compatibility resting on a technical invention in progress, as printing was at one time, annexing itself to large-run lithography and engraving. Every step in technical invention serving as platforms enabled a broadening of the compatibility between particular arts. To the extent that cinema and television are like architecture in the 17th century or the book in the 19th century. A house of arts rather than an art seeking to stay within itself under the pressure of a professional group, inhibiting the opening of a permanent invention. Formalizations are always accompanied by domination. In the normative domain, it was at times religious thought, at others, political theory, and at yet others, a legal research offering to quote unquote values a compatible grouping by constructing a complete system in accordance with the dominant issue of the moment which became like a vast house for all other problems. After the legal system of the French Revolution, a socio-economic system followed which incorporated in turn all the other aspects of normativity by situating them with respect to its categories. This process is comparable to what we see at play in the arts, where in each era, there is a dominant art form functioning as a reference system for and containing the others. For this reason, the symbolic frameworks of action and of art are affected by historical relativity their synthetic capability is that of an organizing dominance rather than an absolute universality. Every system inserts itself in a chain of inventions. And this bit is uh, a bit difficult, I think. Um, so maybe the, like the first bit is um, relatively straightforward. So it's this idea that um, um, within art, we have um, these sort of master arts or um, arts as a, a house of arts. So um architecture in the 17th century was a way of coordinating all these different artistic activities um painting uh um gardening uh sculpture etc um all of these things were sort of incorporated into one or or the ideal um was to incorporate all these things into one sort of harmonious whole that would be the palace or the mansion um and then we have in the 19th century literature as this sort of universal art that incorporates um all these different sub uh, elements of art um, or these different domains of art that uh, have to be coordinated and turned into this harmonious whole in the book. Uh, and then uh, cinema and television for the 20th century are these um, sort of forms of coordination of, of various arts. And, and so Simon Dome points out that in the development of cinema, you, you have, of course, it starts with black and white and silent movies and, um, and then it, it first incorporates sound, uh, and then later color as elements. Um, and um, he suggests that um, the, the sort of first step of this incorporation is to sort of make um, the newly incorporated element the focus of the of the artwork, right? So, like in uh, early film, early um, films with sound you have dialogue becomes sort of the centerpiece of the film. And so it's, it's um, the film is um, centered around like speeches and uh, dialogue and, and the spoken word in general. Uh, And then he suggests that um, as, as the incorporation of sound into the film sort of progresses, that speech becomes one element among others in the sound um, sort of uh, in the soundtrack of a, of a film. So of course we have, um in contemporary films there's uh there's the actual uh dialogue but there's also um uh sound effects of various kinds um like foley effects and, and things like that um and and then there's music um and all of these elements are supposed to work together um and you know this is it is not always the case that they um sort of fit together properly uh and i, I know a lot of people have complained about um uh movies over the last I don't know 5 10 15 years um having uh worse sound uh, especially for dialogue and than, uh than previously um that uh it's harder to understand what people are saying in in movies than it was before so maybe there's a sort of um maybe this incorporation of dialogue into the soundtrack has gone too far um in in some respects uh, um, but um yeah so the, you can see this um Sort of movement of uh, this new element is incorporated and becomes the centerpiece of the art form, and then it sort of slowly um, gets incorporated as just one element among others. So dialogue uh, appears alongside music and sound effects as parts of the overall soundtrack of a of a film today. Uh,
1: this point
0: in the last paragraph about
1: formalization and domination, I think, is interesting. Um so maybe in the next section he talks about amplification and control. Um and I know that um in individuation volume one, the the sort of the problem that is resolved by signification um is always relatively open. Um like there the problem sort of sets the conditions of its resolution without like providing the lines of the resolution. I think he Puts it that way. Um, and I wonder for Simon Don, uh, you know, with something like, I guess, in, uh, an artistic medium where there's a, um, a given formalization is predominant. I wonder if the, at the psychic and collective level, if the form of the problem is like relatively open compared to, it would seem like it would have to be compared to like, um, the kinds of seed crystal that can propagate through a given supersaturated solution. Uh, and also, you know, whether he would say that they're capable of like de-differentiation, um, you know, or like counteractualization, I guess, to use a Deleuzean term, uh, from a given formalization so that they can be like a legal system can be reworked or, uh, you know an artistic medium can be radically reconceived
0: yeah, I think that makes sense um, yeah so this this notion of domination here in this pa- in this last paragraph um i yeah I'm not hundred percent sure whether he um, I think what he might be saying here is just that um he's talking about domination sort in in conceptual in terms of conceptual domination so that um, um one uh, art form, one sort of formal structure dominates others in the sense that it subsumes them, it it incorporates them within itself. So the way that um, uh, cinema incorporates um, sound and visuals uh, into one uh, art form. Uh, So I think that might be what he means by domination here, but there's also the other side where we can think of domination in terms of like a social hierarchy um, um, where, um, yeah, there might be... um, there might be a kind of um uh correspondence between a formalization and social hierarchization so um uh like th- this sort of appears most evidently in, in the case of architecture in the 18th century where he talks about the palace as the sort of ideal uh incorporation of all these art forms of course not everyone lives in a palace uh only particular people have the capacity to um enjoy this art form that uh you know unifies all the other art forms um, um so yeah i'm not sure whether he wants us to think of both of these notions of domination at the same time uh or whether we're, we're meant to focus on the the sort of conceptual hierarchy um uh i'm not i'm not sure what what to make of that exactly um but i think also we can um like when he talks about the french revolution and he uh, he says a little bit earlier about how revolutions um, uh, serve as a kind of, what did you say Yeah, revolutions to, as well as a large part of political theory, unfold by inventing at each turn a new system of compatibility, uh, creating new norms, uh, etc. cetera. Um, so yeah, a, a revolution, uh, of course, has a destructive element in the sense that it um, destroys some existing social arrangements, um, but it has this uh, constructive element as well. It um, institutes a new norm, a new way of uh, relating People to each other of uh relating people to um the rest of the world etc um so uh yeah it, it's uh a revolution is like maybe the the most uh extreme case of this kind of formalization it's uh like um it's it's a kind of marking a transition um uh, that only happens once um as opposed to like a graduation ceremony or uh, a new year celebration or whatever, this is something that happens every year. It, it's sort of repeated. And, um, it's, uh, it's marking a, a transition that happens over and over again, whereas a revolution, um, is, uh, a, a transition that only happens once. Um, um it, it's, it's not repeated. Um, but this, like it. In each case, whether it's, you know, uh, a transition that only happens once or a transition that happens every year, um, there's still this sort of, um, compatibilization of something that wasn't previously compatible or this discovery slash invention mm-hmm. of, a of, a uh, a realm of compatibility of something, um, that wasn't compatible before. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, there's definitely a lot of connections we can make with, um, individuation in this last, uh. Paragraph, um, but yeah, it's, it's quite quite dense. Um, so, what exactly? Like, I I don't think we can uh, unpack everything in this paragraph. Right.
1: I wonder what he uh, has in mind exactly with the um, the example of literature in the nineteenth century. I was thinking maybe something like uh, like I know that Odion uh, Odion Radon did like um, engravings for. Baudelaire's fleur du uh something like that kind of incorporation of different artistic media due to technological advancement, like, like printing here?
0: Yeah, it could be. I'm not 100% sure either. Um, I mean, engraving is pretty much as old as uh, the printing press. Um, actually, I think possibly older. I think there were some, uh, um, you know, uses of engraving... Um, to reproduce images before there were um, there was movable type, if I remember correctly. Um, but um, yeah, there's uh, in the nineteenth century, of course, you have the, envelop- the development of um, printing technology that makes it much cheaper to reproduce um, books, uh, newspaper, et cetera. Uh, and um, so this this allows for uh, a mass distribution of uh, reading material that was um, not quite as accessible. Uh, even in the 18th century um, so that, that could be part of what he's talking about but I think maybe he's also, so it, it might be that the book incorporates um, the visual um, not so much in that it actually incorporates uh, engravings or or plates or whatever, um, that's one element but also in, in the way that um, the novel in the 19th century um, has this sort of universal role the novel is sort of a um um this uh encapsulation of society as a whole like any sort of social problems are are sort of expressed in the novel um um and um the the sort of palette that a novelist has available to them includes um you know descriptions of visual effects the you know scenery and um what a person looks like, and so on, um, but also, you know, sound. Uh, all the different sense modalities are, are, you know, things that can be incorporated into uh, into a novel. Um, so I think maybe that's part of what he has in mind here. Um, this sort of totalizing or universalizing role of the novel in the 19th century, um, um, and then also I'm thinking of Balzac's uh, idea of the the book, the, you know, with a capital letter, um, this sort of universal book that would um uh um have this sort of ceremonial of reading um like he had this sort of elaborate plan for like how this book was going to be um read in like different passages different passages would be read every day or every week or whatever i can't remember the details um but like this sort of ceremonial uh, associated with the book um um so we can think of something like this uh possibly as well um this kind of um literacy culture or literary culture, uh, I guess. And and, um, the 19th century is also the period when the literary critic becomes sort of a a key um, figure in intellectual life as well. Um, So, you know, uh, appreciating the novel or or literary works in general, um, understanding their significance, um, uh, explaining that significance to other people is like one of the key uh, roles of an intellectual in the 19th century, uh, and is sort of meant to uh, lead people into a, a greater understanding of um, the art form um, uh, as well. So maybe all of these things together are, are how the novel or the book um, um, sort of incorporates other domains of um, of art into itself. Okay, uh, let's go on to the next subsection. Um, I'm not sure which of you are um, willing and able to read today, but uh, if I can get a volunteer to read the next, uh, the next page or so. Uh, I can read again. Um, subsection
1: three, processes of amplification in formalization. The source of compatibility and inventions of formalization is also a process of amplification, of recruitment through which a small and simple structure governs and modulates realities that are broader, more complex, and more powerful. In metrological formalization, compatibility is realized by the discovery beyond complex realities such as volumes or densities of a simple structure forming the basis of a system, fundamental units, and of their mode of combination. For instance, the decimal system with its prefix deca-, hecto-, or kilo-, The most complex relations between quantities to be measured find here a possibility of production and commutation. They become commensurable. The same goes in the axiological domain. To invent a moral framework, for instance, means finding a system of fundamental units sufficiently simple and sufficiently close to the subject so that it can be anterior to any complex case submitted to a normative decision. The morals of each class or caste in ancient city-states had no common point and we not mutually compatible. The invention of a morality of compatibility with Stoicism consisted in setting up as a source of normativity a fundamental and primordial image simpler than that of any codified activity, that of any already codified activity, and thus capable of modulating such activities, that of the role of the persona, which may be equally that of the soldier or the emperor and which possesses an intrinsic normativity as role-play, playing to the end or playing well. When the ancients discovered that slaves were humans rather than speaking goods or tools, they bestowed a normative structure on the master-slave relation by modulating it through the model of the simpler and more primordial relation of father to children, justice, protection, etc. It is the smaller and simpler reality that serves as a paradigm for the broader reality and governs it. In Christian morality, the rule of reciprocity, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And in a more concrete way, the model of fraternity is a basis for all human relations, give to a very simple and spare situation, less charged with social formalization and the relation of father to children, the power to model the infinite diversity of relations with others. Fraternity is the standard situation, pure and simple which is amplified in governing relations with others in accordance with the morality of charity. In this way, a recently invented moral framework installs itself in the interval of indifferences that remained below the threshold of previous morals by means of a finer normativity. It does not contradict those morals, but avoids having recourse to them, resolving the problem before the former normativity would come into play. Hence, in the episode of The Adulterous Woman About to be Stoned, Christ makes the morality of charity bear on the interval of indifference, separating the stoning in itself and the casting of the first stone. With the sentence, quote, he who is faultless, let him cast the first stone, unquote, he introduces an examination of one's conscience that creates a situation of reciprocity between judging oneself and judging others. In order to throw a stone at the adulterous woman, one would have to throw it at oneself too. Thus, the first stone was never thrown because the new norm set itself below the law, In the interval between the judgment of oneself and the decision to act against others, between the inner self and the gesture. Kant proposes a still more universal normativity that no longer retains even the concrete being in all its affectivity, but only a goodwill and a respect for the reason in oneself as well as in others, which amounts to considering the human person as an end rather than a means. Increasingly simple structures then serve as the basis for normative formalizations, each representing another invention. Yeah, this is uh, this is very interesting. Um, I know, in in individuation, he was sometimes critical of uh, of n- like knowledge by induction, basically, um, because you know the idea, as we've discussed a few times, is that the more extension uh, concept has, the less concrete that concept is. Um, but the same kind of generalization seems to be what allows for the amplification of uh these normative rules or um, normative frameworks, so that the basically the um the example of the stoning the this norm about reciprocity is like more fine grained than the norm that it intervenes on. And so it is able to kind of slip in, in this, uh, what does he call it? Interval of indifference um, and govern the situation because it is, because it, it is more general and has more extension and therefore is less bound to any particular concrete situation.
0: Yeah. I think here we see maybe, um, the connection between like, why, why does he call the same, why does he use the same term formalization for um, the operative side, you know, the technical knowledge that is formalized into uh, uh, this encyclopedic knowledge um, on the one hand, and then for this affective emotional side, um, where you formalize um, affective emotional life in ceremony or ritual. Um, uh, Here we can see maybe like why he might want to use the same term for both, because um in in formalization of normativity in uh sort of taking um a normative structure and uh making it into an explicit code of laws or norms or principles or whatever um you are um allowing those principles to be applied to more situations in the same way that um uh taking craft knowledge and um turning it into, uh, you know, uh, something you can write down in a textbook um, allows it to be, you know, transferred to other situations um, and other uh, uh, applied to new um, uh, objects in a way that wasn't possible with uh, just purely craft knowledge. Um, So this idea of, I mean, it's it's probably an idealization, but there's this idea of, uh, like we were talking before we started recording about Hegel's conception of uh, substantial ethical life. this idea of um, uh, you know a, a certain a society in which everyone has a, an assigned role um, and knows exactly what they have to do in accordance with that role and um, and just does what they what they're supposed to do um, as like a person with this particular status. Um, the, so this sort of idealized, um, fully determinate um, uh, society in which everyone has a, a an assigned normative status um uh is one in which these norms or these uh the norms that govern one person with you know this status are completely separate from the norms that govern another person with a different status and so there's no like um way of connecting those with each other um and uh what happens in the ancient world is you or in the ancient mediterranean world you you end up with um um these ideologies like stoicism and then later christianity that um sort of transcend those specific um those specific rules or those specific statuses of people um and so stoicism in principle is something that a slave or an emperor can just as well um use to govern their their moral life uh, or their ethical life um and even more so christianity um uh is uh is meant to um, sort of overcome those specific statuses of being uh, uh, a Jew or a Greek or um, uh, a Roman citizen or not, um, you know, a a slave or a free person, etc. Yeah, so um, you're allowed to sort of make reference or or to appeal to these moral principles um, that don't uh, belong to a specific social category. Uh, So yeah, it's once... Um, so in a, a society where everyone has an assigned specific role, um, these sort of roles are not going to be formalized. They're not going to be written down or you know, expressed in such a form that you can um, uh, explicitly state them. Whereas in a society where um, you start to have these explicitly stated um, moral principles or normative principles, um, then you can sort of appeal to them in a variety of situations uh, and sometimes they might have sort of um, unintended consequences or, or um, they might, you know, a, a set of norms that was developed in one society might um, lead to, for example, slaves deciding that, you know, uh, being a slave is actually not um, that great and not something that is morally justified. Um, and so, you know, we're going to revolt against uh, a system that holds us as slaves. Um, so this is something that, uh, you know, formalizing normative principles allows for them to be applied in ways that maybe, um, they were not, uh, originally meant to be intended, uh, meant to be applied, um, and allows for, you know, um, a, a variety of different uses of those principles, uh, and, and possibly against the system in which they were originally formulated. Um, so I think this is why he, uh, he sort of, um, why he applies the same term of formalization to both the operative side and the affected emotional side, um, because in each case this formalization process allows for um, the yeah this amplification this sort of spread of what was applied in one situation to a variety of other situations that were that were not um, sort of envisioned when when this formalization was first performed. And then it's an interesting question, I think. Um, like you pointed out, um, Simondon's criticism of uh, inductive thinking, um, or this sort of hierarchy of genus and species um, schema of thought, where um, the genus is always uh, thinner or poorer than the um, the species that falls under it. Um, uh, so as you ascend the hierarchy of genera, you get the, like a a concept that has a, a Wider extension, but less and less content, um, until you reach like the concept of object or or being or something like that, um, which is you know the the most general concept. Um, um, here we have, uh, I think, or at least I think what he is intending for us to get out of this and by using his term amplifi- amplification. He's pointing back toward this transductive mode of thinking, as opposed to inductive mode of thinking. Um, and so the idea is that we have um, a transfer from one situation to another that is not a generalization in the sense of a, you know, a loss of content. Um, so, in formalizing a normative, um, a normative system, we, uh, in principle, we don't lose that content. We we're abstracting from the specifics of uh, of one situation, but at the same time, we're allowing for the application to. To another situation, um, so a uh, uh, a system of normative principles, whether it's Stoicism or Christianity or whatever, is uh, I think the way we're meant to understand it here is something is as something that is just as um, as uh, rich as conceptually rich, uh, you know, as full of determination, as uh, a concrete ethical decision. Um, so, like when we pass from. The society where everyone has their roles pre-assigned to uh, a society where there are these formal principles that you can appeal to. Uh, we're not uh, losing uh, concreteness or um, um, specificity of the norms of, of our society. We instead are um, adopting these norms or um, finding these norms that um, allow for application to a variety of situations. Whereas previously there might only have been one situation or one family of situations that are the norms that we knew uh, applied to. Uh, So yeah, it's a a sort of transductive thinking as opposed to inductive. So we're, we're not supposed to lose content as we um, pass from one situation to another. used the
1: the word universal universality a couple of times in the past couple of pages. And I wonder if for Simon Don the like the more transductive uh, a given um, like seed crystal or formalization is sort of the more universe universality that I mean I guess I'm trying to think like how it relates to the way somebody like Hegel or Kant would use the term universal um, like maybe for Simon Don a universal is just a uh, concept with a very high degree of uh, transductivity or like potential or actual amplification.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so he he mentions here. So on this last page that we just read, uh, so we talked about Kant as a more uh, a more universal Kantian normativity as more universal than Christianity. Um, uh, and then I forget where exactly we saw this previously, but um, in the last couple of pages he did used that term a couple more times if I am not mistaken um he he points to this idea that um uh, yeah there, there's a sort of universalizability in principle of um, of um, a formalization and so I think um I think yeah, the universalizability in one sense, yeah, just means this capacity to be applied to uh, any situation of a given domain. Um yeah, like um Kantian normativity is more universal than Christianity in the sense that it doesn't um um it in principle Kantian normativity doesn't have to do with affectivity a, at all. Um it it's all about um practical reason. And so any rational being, uh, you know, angels or Martians or, you know, the inhabitants of Saturn that Kant believes in, um um they, they would all um Sort of be subject to these norms, uh, no matter what their affective life might look like. They might be organized in a very different way. They might desire very different things than human beings, um, and um, you know have very different uh, responses to situations than human beings do. But um, uh, insofar as they are rational beings, uh, rational practical beings, they would have to obey these same norms of practical reason. Um, so, yeah it's more universal in the sense that it um applies to more um more entities than uh christianity does um but i think maybe it's we can think of this not so much just in quantitative terms of like how many entities fall under this concept but in terms of this uh as, as you said this sort of uh tension of information concept uh or this potential for transduction um, so, certain notions, certain uh, formalized um, ethical theories or ethical uh, systems have this capacity um, sort of intrinsic to them or contained within them to structure other situations. Uh, and so, uh, a normative system would sort of um, be more powerful or more, or have a higher tension of information, the more of this capacity to structure other situations it has. Uh, And so that would be more universal in that sense. Um, So it would be a sort of intrinsic universality or internal universality, um, as opposed to just like counting how many entities fall under these different concepts. Um, So, yeah, the Kantian normativity would be more universal in the sense that it it has a greater capacity to structure situations, you know, including our relations with the inhabitants of Saturn, um, if we... Ever uh, were to encounter them, um, you know they would fall under the the norms of this concept um, in in the same way as our relationships with other human beings. Um, so yeah, I think that's maybe more what he has in mind when he talks about universality. Yeah, he uh, in uh, his Natural History of the Heavens, I believe, is the title of the work. He uh, he argues that the uh, I think we might have talked about this before, but he argues that the um, moral um, integrity of rational beings depends on the density of the matter of which their bodies are composed, and so the um, gaseous planets like Saturn have very uh, thin matter uh, or very uh, low density, and so the the beings, the inhabitants of Saturn, would be more moral than um, than we are with our sort of thick, uh, high density matter. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty cool. That's great.
1: Beings made of like tungsten would be super immoral, I guess.
0: Yes, uh, I, I think the inner planets, um, I think for Kant, there's like a sort of direct correlation between the density and the um, um, distance from the sun. So the, the inner planets would have the most immoral beings. So I guess we shouldn't go visit Venus or, or Mercury.
1: Gives a new meaning to calling somebody dense.
0: <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, Okay, so let's um, go on to the next page. Uh, I can read this, and I'll I'll read to the end of the section here, and I think that's probably where we'll end for today. The various formalizations bring about compatibility in the form of an interaction between the various orders of magnitude of a staggered reality, family, city-state, inhabited lands. The invention of new formalization amounts to discovering a smaller and simpler model closer to the subject and serving as paradigm for larger orders of magnitude. Formalization thus gives an exemplary axiological value to an action ever more purely inchoate, which amounts to augmenting sensibility and at the same time the universality of the formalization, thanks to the inner structure of amplification. In this form, invention, whether practical or symbolic, formalization is the result of an interaction between a present field of finality and an accumulated field of experience. The act of invention is not not essentially distinct from the organized modes of growth characterizing organisms. In the course of of growth, a structure recruits and distributes resources provided by the milieu for an amplifying result. The weak and minimal endogenous reality governs and distributes exogenous reality. For the organizing interaction to be performed, organized materials must be homogenous and sensitive to the fields distributing them by modulating their flux. And while the data of perception retain a relative heterogeneity and adhere to objects, images resulting from experience and expressing it are endowed with a relative homogeneity and fluidity making them mobile. All things being equal, the genesis of images up to the oversaturated state which follows the encounter with the object produces, for mental syntheses, an available content comparable to that which processes of integration provide the organism during growth. Molecules in a metastable state in their external relations are almost neutral, rendering them easy to distribute with forces of a weak level, yet internally they hold a high potential energy which becomes available when they are distributed within the constituted, uh, constituted organism. Organism is, organization is possible because it is performed during the latency state of reality subject to organization. The genesis of, of images, the progressive saturation across phases, provides a reserve of contents in a state of latency, almost neutral externally, yet internally and intrinsically rich in possibilities of transformation, such as the imago with its polyvalent character. Inside the complex imago, the condensed experience constitutes a system of potentiality comparable to the large molecules of organic chemistry. The imago may be mobilized by a weak field. Uh, the imago that may be mobilized by a weak field brings with it a considerable reserve of accumulated experience. Such, too, are the results of exploration and free manipulation, or quote "experiments just to see." Unquote. Around each center provided by the perceptual and motor reference to the object, a polyvocal system of properties of things and the organism's modes of access is constructed that is externally closer to the neutral state than was the spontaneous motor initiative or the perceptual encounter. Organization occurs when simplicity rules a flux of complex realities. And this is possible because complex realities can provisionally be in a state of latency, enabling them to manifest as weakly polarized externally and to free their content once they have been put into place. Mm. So this is quite abstract. Um, um, so, yeah, this is, again, very um, closely tied with individuation, uh, the the book Individuation. Um so here he's describing invention as a kind of individuation, as a kind of genesis, um, and he's comparing it to growth of an organism. Uh, so when an organism grows, uh, and again, the, the sort of simpler case is the case of the crystal uh, growing in in the solution because um, in this case, you just have a repeating crystalline structure, um, a cubicle or whatever the shape of the crystal is. Um, so the 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 crystal just sort of reproduces this form over and over again in bigger and bigger um, parts of the, of the solution. Uh, an organism, of course, is much more complicated than just a, a crystal. It has not just this one sort of repeating structure, but it has a, a sort of um, uh, articulated structure in the sense that it has, you know, different organs, different types of tissue and so on um, that all have to be um, produced in the right proportions. And as an organism grows, those proportions change as well. Um, so, yeah, so, uh, the growth of an organism is much more complicated than the growth of a crystal, but in principle, it's the same idea of, uh, taking in matter from the environment and, uh, structuring it in, in accordance with the structure of the existing, uh, already structured, um, uh, entity, in, in this case, the organism. Um, uh, and then the, for the process of invention is, uh, is similar in the sense that you take, um, this sort of domain of uh, images that are acquired through, um, as as he pointed out earlier in this section, um, through play or in the way he puts it here, to experiments just to see. So um, you pick up a stick and sort of poke things with it and or you bend it or whatever. You, you sort of learn what its properties are. You're, you're not sort of uh, aiming at a specific goal. You're just sort of playing with a stick and figuring out what you can do with it. Uh, and then later um, uh, when you have some situation where um, you are trying to reach a certain goal you sort of, uh, the images that you've acquired of this stick come to be incorporated into the structure of the situation Uh, and this is uh, what an invention is so you um, you're trying to get at the tasty ants inside a a tree, uh, if you're a chimpanzee and uh, you suddenly sort of remember or these images come to mind of uh, you know what you've um, what you've learned about sticks just by playing with them, and you decide I'm going to pick up a stick, uh, strip off the the leaves, and then stick it into the the hole in the tree and get at the ants. Um, so this uh, you know relatively simple invention um, is uh, uh, a sort of uh, growth of the capacity of uh, operation of the chimpanzee uh, by restructuring the images that make up the the mental life of the chimpanzee um in the same way that the growth of an organism is a restructuring of the um uh you know set of chemicals and materials in a uh, a particular uh environment um absorbing some of those materials and restructuring them so that they form tissues and organs and so on um so yeah this that's sort of what's going on here is yeah this um analogy between growth of an organism and uh growth of the operative capacity of uh, uh of an agent of some kind um by restructuring the images that make up its mental life yeah this bit is, is very dense uh, maybe we can come back to it a little bit um next time as we um uh, read the rest of the of the part uh and we go into the next section um we can sort of see if we can make more sense of it but. Um, yeah it's it's um putting the uh content that he's been um developing in this book in connection with uh or with this lecture course he's putting that content into connection with his uh uh, more strictly philosophical work in individuation and he's sort of applying this schema of the genesis of an individual to the genesis of uh uh, of an invention, um, so an in- invention as a process is a kind of genesis of an individual within our mental life.
1: yeah, I guess I mean, what I can understand about these two paragraphs it does seem very similar to the that other dense paragraph a couple of sessions ago where he um, talked about the high valency um, sort of future state image recruiting a lot of these lower valency, um, more like um, lower intensity learning images that we talked about in relation to like the invention of the, the airplane, but also, as you already mentioned, um, you know, these, building these lower intensity images through like um, exploring an enclosure or uh, learning a territory so that you can take detours and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, so... In that passage, he was talking about how there's a sort of balancing of this high intensity image, which is the goal you're trying to achieve, you know, getting at the food or getting at the, um, the whatever the goal is, uh, you know, being able to fly in the case of the airplane. Um, uh, this high intensity image has to be balanced by um, um, a much greater number of low intensity images, like um, um, all of the properties of of the objects that you've encountered uh, the properties of the territory uh, that you've explored um, in the case of the airplane, all the scientific knowledge that goes into the development uh, scientific and technical knowledge that goes into uh, an airplane. You know, you have to know what a internal combustion en- engine is. You have to know the properties of steel or metals of, of various kinds. Um, um, all these different things have to be sort of uh, present for you to be able to um, Counterbalance the desired goal state with its high, um, high sort of um, polarization. Uh, so, um, yeah, he's definitely pointing back to that passage here. Um, um, uh, and but he's now um, connecting that idea back up with this um, uh, schema from individuation of the genesis of an individual. Um, so this high po- polarization. Um, is now being connected up with this notion from individuation of the high tension of information, or of this capacity to structure um, a field. So um, uh, the image that um, that has this high um, this high polarization also um, uh, sort of um, brings about the the transformation of the uh, whole system of images. Um, or it's maybe it's the connection between the the high polarization image and the lower polarization images um, brings about the transformation of the whole structure of the field of images um, so that now the solution of the problem sort of um, uh, stands out or you know just sort of uh, comes to mind immediately. There's also a bit in um, on the mode of existence of technical objects where he talks about how um, certain technical objects, uh, have this property of sort of producing their own conditions of existence um, uh, in the sense that um, one part of the object or one element of the object can only function um, because some other element of the of the technical object is also functioning. So, like, uh, he talks about a, a certain type of turbine, for example, where um, the, uh, if I remember correctly, the, the cooling function of the, Uh, turbine is sort of incorporated into the actual rotors of the turbine um um, so like without this cooling function the uh, turbine itself would not be operable but the cooling function is something that is brought about by the operation of the turbine um so um and and he suggests that in this case or, or in these types of technical objects it's because we are living beings that we can sort of um give life to these uh schemas of operation, um, we can sort of um, apply our capacity uh, like this sort of self-producing property of a living being to a technical object um, in our thought uh, or in our imagination. We can sort of use our schema of life as self-production to um, uh, make sense of this kind of self-producing or self-conditioning uh, technical object. Um, so, yeah, I think that passage is also relevant to what he's talking about here. Um, so when we invent something um, in the sort of proper sense of the term, we or the more strict sense of the term, we're um, sort of applying the fact that we are living beings um, to some sort of object or some sort of domain of, of existence. Um, we're, we're using that um, schema of self-conditioning uh, uh to to sort of structure a new situation a new domain of existence okay uh so if there are no other uh comments or questions then i think we should probably end here since we're almost at the two hour mark anyway and uh we're at a good break in the text so the next um section section c is quite long i think it's like 15 where or, or, uh, actually yeah, it's more than 20 pages um so yeah we'll, we'll spend a few weeks on that um But that takes us to the end of part four, and then there's just the conclusion after that. So we're um, getting towards the end of the book. We have uh, see, yeah, uh, about thirty pages left in the book. So yeah, we're getting there.
1: That's great. We got through this much faster than (laughs) uh, individuation.
0: Yeah, it was much much longer, (laughs) (laughs) right? And and also much less dense in in most parts, aside from a couple passages. Right. Uh, Okay, so thanks, everyone, for coming out. Um, Hope to see you next week, Uh, and we'll pick up from page 163, uh, uh,
1: section C. Sounds good. Thanks, man. Talk to you all next week.